Israel is God's unfaithful wife, committing spiritual adultery, so she's issued a certificate of divorce, and judgment comes upon her. The seven seals, the seven bowls, the seven trumpets, and John is telling the story of the judgment that is coming on the old covenant wife for her adultery. Hello friends and welcome or welcome back. We are continuing to make our way through the book of Revelation. We've looked at the main characters in Revelation. We've looked at the author's intent. We've talked about several frameworks for studying Revelation and the challenges that we have as modern readers trying to understand this book. In this episode, we're going to get into the storyline or the dramatic flow of Revelation. And once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Kenneth Gentry and all the effort that he has put into understanding this book and studying it and researching it. And I really appreciate the understanding that he has come to that is grounded in the narrative of Scripture. It's grounded in the whole narrative of the Bible. And I think it makes so much sense to understand the book of Revelation in the context of everything else that God is doing in Scripture. And I really appreciate Dr. Kenneth Gentry and all his work. As I've mentioned before, we're going for a very high-altitude overview. If you want more in-depth resources, go check out Dr. Kenneth Gentry. You can Google him. You can search him on YouTube, and he has some excellent resources. All right, so let's get into the dramatic flow of Revelation. In Revelation, God is bringing judgment. In 18 of the 22 chapters of Revelation, we see God's throne mentioned. And God's throne is mentioned 62 times in the New Testament, and 40 plus of those times are in Revelation. So obviously, judgment is a very prominent theme of the book of Revelation. And I think probably everyone who looks at Revelation agrees with that, that it is about judgment. But I think there's probably a greater variance of opinion about who is being judged. And so, again, I just want to set this before you and offer these things to you for you to take to the Lord and test them. You don't have to agree with me. I'm not trying to indoctrinate anyone. I recognize that this interpretation could be wrong. However, it really seems to fit the whole narrative of Scripture, and it really seems to fit the narrative of the New Testament. And so I just want to set this before you. So we're thinking in terms of judgment, and we have these characters, as we mentioned before, we have the harlot and we have the beast, and in our last episode we laid out why the harlot is Old Covenant Israel. We looked at the description of the harlot and how it fits with the priest's clothing and the name that was intended to be written on the priest's forehead, and yet the harlot has a different name written on her forehead, and that cross-references with Jeremiah chapter 3, where he says, you have the forehead of a whore, and you refuse to be ashamed. Uh, And then later in that same chapter, Jeremiah, he says, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. So we have Old Covenant Israel, and we have God bringing judgment. And I think this is a very biblical, logical way of understanding this book. If we understand that Israel is God's wife, Isaiah chapter 54 verse 5 says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. 
And the whole book of Hosea is this theme. But Hosea 2, 19 and 20 says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So we have Old Covenant Israel who has committed spiritual adultery over and over and over. Jeremiah 3, chapter 2 says, You played the whore with many lovers. Jeremiah 3, 9 says, She took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Jeremiah 5, 7 says, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped. To the houses of whores. Ezekiel 23, 37 says, For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. So we have this adulterous wife, and we have God holding judgment. And then we have this scroll that plays a very prominent part in the storyline. You remember the scroll that no one could open except the Lamb of God. And the scroll reflects judicial imagery against Israel. It's a picture of a pronouncement of judgment. Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3 talk about this. Ezekiel chapter 14 from verses 14 to 30. I'm just going to read a few of these verses. It says, "...and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect." through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourselves colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourselves a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourselves to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. So this was the judgment that Ezekiel was pronouncing on Israel. But now even a more severe wrong has been done by Israel. They have not received the Messiah. John 1.11 is talking about Jesus. It says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In John 19.15, you remember that the Jews had taken Jesus to Pilate to crucify him, and they say to him, we have no king but Caesar. And so we get all these parables of Jesus that we've covered in previous episodes of Jesus warning the Jews, the wedding banquet 
where the, the those who were originally invited refused the invitation, the vineyard workers who killed the owner's son. And so at this point, Old Covenant Israel has committed the worst of all their offenses in rejecting Jesus Christ. So God issues a decree. It's this scroll with seven seals. So what is this scroll? The scroll is the certificate of divorce that God is issuing to the old covenant wife, the harlot in Revelation. And I think it's important to note that only Jesus was worthy to open that scroll. Revelation 5 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is the only one who is worthy to open this scroll. Jesus is the only one who was worthy to execute judgment on Israel and establish a new covenant with his people. Nobody else could have done it. Only Jesus Christ could do this. And look a little bit further down. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When Jesus came to earth, he knew it was his mission to minister to Israel, but he also knew that when Israel rejected the covenant of God, there would come judgment on Israel, and a new covenant would be established that would include all of humanity, Anyone who wanted to come into the family of God could come by the blood of Jesus. And this is amazing. This is amazing. And John is communicating this vision and and telling this story in language that is mind-blowing, truly. And so one possible interpretation of this scroll is a certificate of divorce, the judgment of God, coming against his unfaithful wife. And you may remember, under the Old Covenant, divorce was allowed. In Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, God lays out the requirements for a certificate of divorce. And in fact, the Pharisees even questioned Jesus about this. They asked him if it was okay to divorce one's wife for any and every reason. And Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so God has this adulterous wife, and he's giving her a certificate of divorce, and he's also going to bring the old covenant remedy for adultery against the harlot. And that is what we see in the seven seals, seven bowls, and seven trumpets. So look with me at Leviticus chapter 26. And in this chapter, we get God wrapping up the book of Leviticus, and he's talking about the blessings for being faithful 
to the covenant, and then he gets into the punishment for disobedience or unfaithfulness to the covenant. Beginning in Leviticus 26, 14, he says, If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And then God basically lays out for them what's going to happen to them if they don't keep the covenant. And he tells them what the consequences of unfaithfulness to the covenant will be, that there will come judgment and all these bad things will happen to them. But then look down at verse 18 of Leviticus 26. He says, if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And then look at verse 21. He says, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And then in verse 24, then I also will walk contrary to you and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And verse 28, then I will walk contrary to you in fury and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And this is the judgment that Jesus was warning the people of when he tells them in Luke 19. He says, they're going to come and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And listen how it's described in Exodus 26, 25. I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And then down in uh, verse 29, you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And that is uh, echoing what we already discussed from Deuteronomy, this most tragic, heartbreaking verses in the Bible where he foretells what's going to happen when Jerusalem is surrounded by the Romans and people are literally eating their own children, just the most unimaginable wickedness and depravity that humanity is capable of. And God warned the people, and that is why we see this sevenfold judgment. Leviticus warned them. He said, I'm going to discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And we see that this is the dramatic flow of Revelation. We have the Lord holding judgment. God is on his throne. Israel is God's unfaithful wife committing spiritual adultery. So she's issued a certificate of divorce. And judgment comes upon her, the seven seals, the seven bowls, the seven trumpets. And John is telling the story of the judgment that is coming on the old covenant wife for her adultery. And there's something really interesting about this matrimonial language. John the Baptist used it. He said that he was sent to introduce Israel to her bridegroom. In John 3, 27 to 30, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. So John the Baptist says, I'm here to introduce the bride to the bridegroom. Uh, in Luke 
chapter 5, verse 34, Jesus uses the same kind of language. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So he's identifying himself as the bridegroom and the people that he's come to have in matrimony to be wedded to is his bride. And so how fitting in this context that the first miracle that the gospel of John records, probably the same John writing the book of Revelation, is in John chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. And it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so how fitting that the Messiah, the bridegroom who has come to take his bride, he takes the nasty, stagnant, old water that was in these stone water jars to be used in rites of purification, part of the old covenant, and he transforms it into wine, which is a sign of celebration and joy and a wedding And it's a picture of the water of Judaism, the water of the Old Covenant being changed into the wine of Christianity, the wine of the New Covenant. But he told the people, old wineskins can't hold the new wine. And so the people rejected Jesus. And so Revelation is the account in apocalyptic, symbolic language of this massive transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant, from unfaithful harlot wife to new, pure bride prepared for the bridegroom. And there's something else really interesting that happens in Revelation. Look at Revelation 16, 21. It says, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail, because the plague was so severe. Now look with me at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. That says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And look at Deuteronomy twenty-two twenty-four, And you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. And what's interesting about this is we have an account from Josephus, the historian that I've mentioned before, about the Roman attack on Jerusalem. And I'm going to read this account by Josephus, but I want you to listen in the context of the law of the Old Testament that an adulterer was to be stoned and of the picture in Revelation that we have these hundred pound hailstones falling from heaven on the people. Okay, so this is the description of the attack by Josephus. The engines that all the legions had ready prepared for them were admirably contrived, but still more extraordinary ones belonged to the 10th legion. Those that threw darts and those that threw stones were more forcible and larger than the rest. 
by which they not only repelled the excursions of the Jews, but drove those away that were upon the walls also. Now the stones that were cast were of the weight of a talent. So that's the hundred pounds. If, if you look in your uh, biblical text, the hundred pounds, there should be a footnote there. It says a talent in weight. So back to Josephus. The stones that were cast were of the weight of a talent and were carried two furlongs and further. The blow they gave was no way to be sustained, not only by those who stood first in the way, but by those who were beyond them for a great space. As for the Jews, they at first watched the coming of the stone, for it was of a white color, and could therefore not only be perceived by the great noise it made, but could also be seen before it came by its brightness. Accordingly, the watchmen that sat upon the towers gave them notice when the engine was let go, and the stone came from it and cried out aloud in their own country language, The stone cometh! So that those who were in its way stood off and threw themselves down upon the ground, by which means, and by thus guarding themselves, the stone fell down and did them no harm. But the Romans contrived how to prevent that by blacking the stone, who then could aim at them with success. When the stone was not discerned beforehand as it had been till then, and so they destroyed many of them at one blow. Yet did not the Jews under all this distress permit the Romans to raise their banks in quiet, but they shrewdly and boldly exerted themselves and repelled them both by night and by day. So Josephus is writing about the siege of Jerusalem leading up to its total destruction in AD 70. The Romans have seized Jerusalem and they've got these catapults hurling stones that weigh a hundred pounds, a talent in weight, and they're white stones. So this is the prophecy given in Revelation. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And this is the punishment for Israel's adultery. So the dramatic flow, the storyline of Revelation could be understood this way. God divorces Old Covenant Israel for her harlotry. She's stoned for her adultery. Now, having legally disposed of the harlotress, his unfaithful wife, God takes a new bride. Once the harlot is dead, we see a new bride coming down from heaven. So, Revelation's flow is from God's judicial throne, the divorce of Israel, her capital punishment, taking the new bride, and in the collapse of Jerusalem, you have the final phase of redemptive history entered into so that the Gentiles can now become the bride of Christ, so that it's no longer this ethnocentric, Jerusalem-centered focus on Israel, but it's the kingdom of God going out and expanding. It's the angels of God being sent out to the four corners of the earth to sound the trumpet and to bring the harvest to call everyone to come to Mount Zion. And in no way should what I am saying be construed to be anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. I am in no way anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. I honor the Jewish people. I honor the Hebrew people. Salvation is from the Jews. Paul said that uh, salvation came to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So I believe in any context where there are Jewish people, we should honor them. We should share the gospel with them. We should love them. 
And Jewish people today should never be dishonored or blamed for how Jesus Christ was treated when he came to the earth 2,000 years ago. We should love the Jewish people even if they reject the Messiah the same way that we love Gentile people who reject the Messiah. So I believe we should love and honor all people, especially including the Jewish people. And so I just want to clarify, make it crystal clear that This is not an anti-Semitic teaching. I'm not against Jewish people. I believe that we should love all people and that the good news is that everyone can come into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. And this is what Isaiah predicted in Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And frequently when we see mountains in the scripture, it's talking about a kingdom. Remember that in Daniel's vision, the stone that had not been carved from human hands struck the statue and it became a mountain and that mountain filled the whole earth. So he's talking about the nations, all people groups, all ethnic groups streaming into the kingdom of God, coming into the kingdom of God. And so Revelation explains justifies and warns about the destruction of Jerusalem and the demise of Israel. And this fits not only historically what happened in that period of time in the first century AD, but it also fits the whole narrative of scripture. It fits John's different style of communicating where, as I mentioned before, he doesn't have a traditional Olivet discourse like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't have a traditional nativity story. And so we get this unique vision that God gave to Jesus, Jesus gave to the angel, and the angel gave to John. So we have God on the throne in chapter 4 of Revelation, the divorce decree issued in chapter 5 of Revelation. From Revelation chapter 6 to 19, it's the punishment of the unfaithful wife. Revelation 19 is the marriage supper. And Revelation 20 to 22 is the new bride coming and the establishment of a new Jerusalem. And I know for many people, this is a totally new way of looking at the book of Revelation. It certainly was for me. And as I've said all along, my goal is not to convince you to see it the way I do. My goal is to simply share the things that I've been blessed to learn and to say to you, take these before the Lord and see what the Holy Spirit says to you about these things, that perhaps this is a proper understanding of this book, that perhaps John is not writing about events that are completely removed from his original audience's context, but perhaps he's writing about something that was extremely relevant to them. And we can also be blessed by it. We can also see God's faithfulness in protecting his early church and avenging the blood of the martyrs in overcoming those who were opposing the church from the very earliest days that had God not brought this judgment. It's conceivable that the early church could have been snuffed out by Judaism persecuting it or by the Roman government, but God brings this message to the church through his servant John, and he encourages the people, in a little while, in a short time, very soon is coming this judgment, and God is going to rescue you, and God is going to save you. He's going to judge those who are persecuting you. 
And so John encourages his readers to be faithful, to hold on to their faith, to endure till the end, because their faithfulness is accomplishing salvation for everyone who will come after them. Their faithfulness is establishing a church that will literally transform planet Earth, that will literally advance the kingdom of heaven on planet Earth. And so I present those things to you to consider, to test, test them by the scripture, test them by the Holy Spirit, and enjoy interacting with the Lord about these things. Enjoy the process of wrestling with a different way of looking at this book and take it before the Lord and enjoy dialoguing with the Lord like you would dialogue with a friend about something that's important to you because I believe this is important to him and I believe this book was written not as a mystery but to be revealed for us to understand. And very briefly, some people, as you begin to understand Revelation this way, you might think, well, maybe all of Scripture is an allegory like this. Maybe Jesus didn't really turn water into wine. Maybe it was the whole thing is just one big allegory, just symbols meant to communicate something that's not literal. But I think that would be a very foolish way to interpret Scripture, because clearly when John is writing his gospel or when Luke is writing his gospel, when the book of Acts is being written, they are not trying to write an allegory about human life on planet Earth. They're writing about real historical events and real people. But in the book of Revelation, we're taking it in the context of it's a highly symbolic book. And so the way that we interpret it is different than when we read a story in one of the Gospels or in the history of the Old Testament or something like that. Okay, so we've looked at the main characters of Revelation, the leading characters. We've now looked at the dramatic flow of the book. In our next episode, we're going to look at what is the result of this story? What are the outcomes? What is accomplished in this story that John has told us? Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon. 